great. Um, so we have a softball team, and woo. Okay. Uh, yes, it's because you're not on it, so you're not clapping. But you can come watch the games. I think our game on Monday night is at eight o'clock, and our uh, our co-ed team is Monday nights, and I play on the co-ed team because I like playing with girls, because then I'm better than some. But not all of them. Some of them are half of them are probably better than me anyway. But anyway, so we're so we're playing on Monday night, and our co-ed team won thirteen to three. We got some guys on our team that can really hit the ball. We have this guy, and he's just like he stands there, boom, and it's like, and every time it's like bouncing off the fence with a softball. So anyway, it's amazing. Uh, our men's team plays on Friday nights, and our men's team lost fourteen to thirteen. But apparently, it was a really good game. Uh, Eric Jafferty, one of our elders, was. Um, Going, hits the ball, and he's running to first base. Britt Stanley, the guy that's kind of the coach of both of our teams, is like standing in the first base coach going, stop, stop at first base. And, and apparently Eric's all, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Keeps going, goes around the corner, rolls his ankle. So he thinks that he might have actually torn his Achilles tendon. So apparently he gets back up, and he's like, and he can't move. And then uh, Jonathan Barthel was telling me that the guy who was playing, whoever had the ball that tagged him out, felt really guilty and was like, <laughs> you know, you're gonna take out the poor guy who can't walk. You know, it's just, it's, it's just kind of sad. Uh, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but uh, every other every two weeks we're flipping our drummers back and forth. Like the Mike uh, will play every other week, every two weeks for two weeks on Sunday mornings. Then he plays two weeks on Sunday nights because we have a Sunday night service. People don't even read the sign. It's kind of funny. It's like a big old sign on the window. People are like, what time does this start? And it's like. Half time we don't know either, so that's okay. And then and then Jaron uh, is one of the newer drummers for us, and he's been playing uh, for two weeks, and then switches with Mike. But I got a great picture of Jaron. I want y'all to see. <laughs> so that that's that, that that's us walking around town clothes. Okay, he's he's a sexy beast, right there. So that that's him. You know, I, I don't know if this is a whole lot of, of fun or not for you, but you know, St. Patrick's Day is this week, and uh, you know, in Europe. Um, I'll just show you a sign. Bailey's sponsors St. Patrick's at St. Patrick's Cathedral. I'm just saying, I think it's awesome. Okay. So why don't you stand on the read of God's word and we'll get going here. Uh, this is Romans chapter 5 verse 2. And it says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask as a people that we would learn how to rejoice in the hope of your glory. That we would understand how to give you the glory that you rightly deserve. How to not take it for ourselves, but give it to you. Help us be people who live that way. Amen. Have a seat. Okay, so we are in the book of John. This is week 22. Woo, okay. I know you're probably thinking, how long is this sucker going to be? Well, I want to tell you, today we are over halfway done. Woo! What? Yeah, we're still we're halfway done. Okay, uh, we're gonna be in John chapter nine today. If you guys actually want to turn there, I, I hope you've enjoyed it. You know, if you haven't, whatever. You know, the, the point is to learn what John knew that Jesus is God, that He is good, that He came to save us, and that we should worship Him. That's the point. And so today I'm going to do something really amazing for you. I don't know what your theological bent is, but uh, today I'm going to prove to you that uh, John Calvin was right, or how would I say this? That uh, Calvin was a Jesusist before he was a Calvinist. Or that good reform theology is actually right in 
Good. You're like, what does that mean? doesn't matter. You'll see today. Uh, talk about a little theology. God's a big God. It's, it's going to be great. Uh, where we're at today, uh, Jesus has just finished making some very bold claims about being alive from the creation of the world, that he is the God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush, that he is the God who created Abraham and spoke to Abraham. And when Abraham was going to sacrifice his son, he is the God who said, don't sacrifice your son. I will provide a sacrifice for you. On this, all nations will be blessed through me and what I come to do. And so we just got through all that, and this is where we're starting, John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Here we go. As he he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, this is standard for that day and our age. We look at people uh, who are hurt or sick, and we think it's a normal question. You know, who did something wrong? It's kind of like you. people who are very religious always tend to think that if something is wrong with you, you did something wrong. You can't find your keys before you have to go to work in the morning. It's like, God, what did I do? How do I have to repent to find my keys? You you get in your car, and all of a sudden they changed your favorite rock station to some country station, and you're like, dear God, what did I do to deserve this? Hell. In my car. You know, you, and, and so you, 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 you kind of ask, this, like, what happened? That's the problem with religion. Religion starts with you, whereas Christianity is supposed to start with Jesus. Religion says there are good people and bad people. Christianity says you're all bad people, and then there's me. And so it works. Religion is about what I do. Well, I go to these meetings, or I speak in tongues, or I lift my hands, or I pray really hard. You know, and Christianity says, Jesus says, it's finished. I did it. Religion's goal is to get from God. You, you do these things so God loves you or likes you, you it's to get from God. Christianity's goal is always Jesus. And then we do what God calls us to do. We, we cut our lawns, we raise our families, we love our kids, and we love Jesus. That's the point. Religion sees suffering and hurting people as being punished by God. Oh, you're lost or you're sick or you lost your job. What did you do wrong? Religion offers people nothing. Even today, every stupid guru from Deepak Chopra to Oprah to Dr. Phil to the the half-crazies on Christian TV all blame you for something going wrong in your life. Now, sometimes it's true. If you don't have any money for rent because you smoked it all, yeah, that's your fault. Okay? You go, you're living in in the... park in a tent because you like to play guitar all day and not hold down a job, or I'm going to go surf all day and not have a job. I know you think some girls think you're cute because you live in a tent and you play the guitar. It doesn't make you cute. It makes you sad, okay? You need to grow up and get a job. But if, if you're born blind or your child gets sick, these people would say, if you just did it better, if you just thought the right thoughts, if you just had enough faith, It would all be better. But listen to what Jesus says. Verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Boil that down to an easy statement. Jesus said God did it. God did it. There is a propensity for people to run from the fact that, yes, God is in charge. Yes, God is. Christians are always trying to make excuses and defend God for things he doesn't try to defend himself against at all. Yes, men do evil. Yes, there is a lot of evil perpetrated in the world because of people, and we are responsible for that. But there's become a search to try and let God off the hook for any problems in the world as if he is not in control. But you can't get around God's sovereignty. Amos chapter 3, verse 6 says, When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble. Uh, When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? How about Lamentations 3.38? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? See, God is not concerned about you blaming Him. 
But just don't blame him to get you and your choices off the hook. I mean, if you're going to blame God and say God is sovereign over everything, then you better be fully aware and understand that he is in control and not you. This is something that we struggle with our entire lives because we want to have authority. We want to call the shots. We want to be those ones that get to call that. But if you simply rest in the assurance that God is in control, it can be comforting in the best possible way. Because God's in charge. You don't have to be. You can sleep like a baby at night because the world is not under your dominion. You can trust God. Jesus said, this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. God had this guy born blind for his work. What do you think that work is? What is God's work? Every service is afraid to answer this question. I'm going to tell you, everybody's like, I'm not saying a word. <laughs> it is for the glory of God, that God would be glorified. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, I know uh, th- this is a great verse to use you know, for, for teenagers who don't know how to keep their hands off each other. And they're like, I want to follow Jesus. And it's like, I was like, okay, use this first. Before you're like, I'm going to go make out with my boyfriend or girlfriend, pray, dear Jesus, I just read 1 Corinthians 10.31, and I want to do everything I do for the glory of you. So as we make out and put our hands over each other, let it be to your glory. All right? And everybody goes, well, that's stupid. And I'm like, yes, it is stupid. But when you're married... That's a beautiful verse to pray because worship is all kissing and touching and doing everything. This is worship to God. This is for the glory of God. So in the marriage, you can go, God, I want to worship you. (laughs) That's right. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. I don't know. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) So we need to understand that God does what he does for his glory. And that is why we should as well. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11 says this, For my own name's sake I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise I hold it back from you, so as not to cut you off. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. See, John Piper says the role of the Holy Spirit is to burn in me what he has been burning for all of eternity. God's love for God. God's love for God. Who do you think is the most God-centered being in the universe? God, exactly. I know that sounds very self-centered because we all think we should be the most glorified being in the universe. You know, we think that God should love us more than anything else. I'll give you a theological concept here. So follow with me. Uh, idolatry is worshiping anything other than God and who he has revealed himself to be. It is why idolatry and not atheism is the opposite of Christianity, because atheism is idolatry. It is placing ourselves and our intellect before God. So the question is, is God an idolater? No. It's, is God an idolater? No. no, no. God does not sin. So God has no other gods before himself. Okay? God is completely God-centered. God has a passion for his glory above all else. Jonathan Edwards writes this. He says, God has respect to himself as his last and highest end in this work because he is worthy in himself to be so, being infinitely the greatest and best of being. All that is ever spoken of in the scripture as an ultimate end of God's work is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. Now, the problem is that most people are willing to only be God-centered as long as they think that God is completely man-centered. 
And that is very dangerous because we think, you know, when we start doing that, all of a sudden we are centering our lives on God for the purpose of our own self-esteem. Well, I will love God because God will really love me back and I'll feel so much better about myself. And God says you can't do that. You can't put trust in men because men will always fail. Isaiah 2.22 says, Stop trusting in a man who has but breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? Psalm 146 verse 3 says, Do not put your trust in princes and mortal men who cannot save. Jeremiah 17.5 says, This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Isaiah 40, verse 15 and 17 says, Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Because men cannot save. Men will always let other people down. But because God's commitment is to being God, we have security. Again, Isaiah 48, verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. Okay. I do this. Can you hear that? Or is that just... Okay. Uh, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. God performs salvation for his name's sake. He justifies those called by his name in order that he may be glorified. Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord. Men defame the name of God. They rub it through the dirt all the time. And God redeems his name by redeeming people. It's a beautiful concept. This is all through Scripture. Uh, why does God save us? Ephesians 1, six says, So the glory of His grace might be praised. Why did God create people and then call them to Himself? Isaiah 43, verse 7 says, For His glory. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart and deliver Israel? Exodus 9.16 says that His name might be declared throughout the earth. Why did God spare Israel when they continuously rebelled against Him? Ezekiel 20, 1 Samuel 8 says, For His name's sake. Why did God bring the Israelites back from Babylonian captivity? Daniel 9.17 says, for his name. Why did God send his son to die for us? Romans 15.8-9 says, so that we might glorify God for his mercy. Even Jesus, in his final hours in John chapter 12, 27 and 28, he prays, My heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Christ dies to glorify the Father and repair the defamation that we had brought upon his honor by reclaiming his name and redeeming us. Simply, God is committed to being God before he is committed to anything else, and in that we can find great security. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but when you pray, have you thought, ever thought about staking your prayers on God's love for his glory? I mean, the foundation of means for God's love for sinners is his prior and deeper and ultimate love for his glory. Why was this man born blind? For the work of God, his glory in this man's life. God's glory brings this man to salvation, and that is what God is concerned about. Okay? So I'm going to get moving because we'll never get through it if I'm just keep blabbering on like this. So keep that in mind. God's glory. You got the concept? Okay, God's glory. Verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, that's a metaphor for Jesus, you know, being here because he's day. 
as long as it was day, we, and he includes us and his disciples in his redeeming work, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming, pointing to the cross, uh, when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world, which refers to the last chapter, pulls it all together. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it in the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seen. So there's the miracle. I mean, typically when we read this, we just, oh, hey, that's nice and great. But Jesus spits on the ground. He makes some mud. He rubs it in the guy's eyes. If someone rubbed spit and mud and started putting in your eyes, what would you do? Be like, whoa, 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 buddy. Blind. He's blind. He can't see it coming. Right? So that's the good thing. That's the good thing about being blind. It's like, boom, what is this? You know, you can't see it coming. You can't flinch. You can't duck. Some, some commentators say that the man, uh, that Jesus put mud on the guy's eyes so he would follow through with the command to wash it off. It's like if you talk to me and you are a close talker and you're a wet close talker, okay, after you get to talking to me, I will go wash my face because I don't need your juice on me. Okay? And so that's, that's kind of the deal. He puts it on, and some commentators are like, oh, so he'll go wash it off. That, that's good. Other commentators, I like this, and I, and I love the way this sounds, is that this is a way for Jesus to refer to the Genesis account because the man is born blind. And so Jesus makes mud like man was made out of mud and clay, and he takes and he puts the mud in the guy's eyes because he is creating new eyes. And he creates new eyes for the guy because it's not an injury of why he was blind. He was born blind. So Jesus creates new eyes. Him. I think it's a beautiful concept. Either way, the man's able to see. And what you see now is that there are four groups of people who respond to this miracle. There's the man's neighbors, there's the Pharisees, there's parents, and then there's the man himself. So verse 8, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, others said, no, he only looks like him. Because God doesn't really do miracles, does he? You know, yeah. But he himself insisted, I am the man. So they're like, that's not him. Oh, it might be him. Oh, I don't know. Could it be him? I don't know. It might be. His eyes look different. I, you know, I, I, I don't know. And the guy's like, no, it's me. It's me. And they're like, no, it's not. No, no, it, it's me. I know it's me. How do you know? Have you ever seen you? <laughs> well, no. Right. We've seen you, and we know it's not you. So... People get all weird when God shows up. Uh, verse 10. How then were your eyes open? They demanded. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. <laughs> right. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. So you see the man's reaction. You see the neighbor's reaction, which is like, Oh yeah, Jesus, we don't believe he exists. Prove it. You know, and the man's reaction, his of going and washing, that's the first stage of his faith. He obeys what Jesus says. He goes and he washes like Jesus said. And they say, where is the ma this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. So they can't explain what's going on. They don't get it like, we don't know. We're country bumpkins. He can see. We don't know what's going on. So they take him to the Pharisees who they think can explain this miracle and what's going on. They have an explanation maybe for what just took place. And here comes the rub. Verse 14. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. It's like, oh, doesn't Jesus ever learn? doesn't on the Sabbath again. What's he thinking? Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Again, the problem with religious people is that they are religious. That's the problem. They, they make rules and rules of how God's supposed to act, and the rules become more important than God. And when God shows up, they kill him because he has more fun than they do. And God likes people, and they don't. And he touches people, and he makes mud on the Sabbath. Is that a big deal? 
Yes, that's a very big deal. The way this works, you have the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments is keep the Sabbath day holy. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10 says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, and I love this, nor your animals. So it's like, don't dig in the yard today. You're not allowed to. You've got a cat. It's like, don't bury that today. Now, actually, this is like referring to oxen and stuff so that they get a day to rest. They're not always found in your field. Uh, nor the alien within your gates. Uh, so over time, people started to ask, well, okay, well, what's work and what isn't work? How, how does, what does this look like? And a whole host of rules get put into place about what is okay and what isn't, what's work, what is, wasn't, isn't work. We call these stupid human laws. That's what we call these. Um, I told you a while ago that you couldn't walk around with a needle in your pocket because it may poke out and sew something, and that's a sin. You can't do that. They had another one where uh, you weren't allowed to walk more than a mile than your home on, from your home on the Sabbath. So what they would do is on all thoroughly walked roads, they would put tents every mile. And so you would walk to a tent and you go, blessings to my home. Then you walk another mile. Well, blessings to my home. And you walk another mile. And you go wherever you needed to go. And so not only did they make these stupid human laws, they made stupid ways to get around their stupid human laws. It's just nuts. So one of the rules was this. Uh, you could spit on a rock on the Sabbath, but you couldn't spit on the dirt because that'd be making mud. And making mud is work. And you're not allowed to work. It's a big deal. You're not allowed to make mud. And there are stupid human rules, and then there is obedience to God. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were not the only ones to make stupid human rules that aren't in the Bible. Even today, religious leaders make rules all the time. I was reading a book a few years ago. Basically, it says, you need to be faithful to your wife. And I'm like... Yeah, okay, got it. That's a big E on the I chart. I'm good. I, I can live with that. You know, and then I think Star Wars reference. I'm like, so Yoda, how do we do this? Uh, and then so he goes to this chapter and he explains, you know, how, how he's faithful to his wife. And he says, I don't go near women. I don't talk to women. I don't touch women. I don't pray with women. I don't have women as friends. And then they won't want to have sex with me. And then you look at the jacket cover where it's got his picture. And you're like, I think you're overestimating your attractiveness just a little bit. Okay. <laughs> Now, I could ask you to come up with a whole list of rules of what a good Christian looks like, and you could give me a list of stupid human rules, too. We all have them. Well, get rid of these friends, and don't go here, and, and pray 20 hours a day, and read your Bible for three, and sleep for one, only if you're evil, and you know, read these magazines, and don't read this, and don't drink any light beer. That one's true, by the way. Just let you know. We have to be careful. We don't end up like the Pharisees. Because it is for God's glory and not ours that we follow him. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, This man, is, meaning Jesus, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. And this miraculous signs, this is plural in the Greek. And so I think it's probably referring back to John chapter 5, where Jesus heals this guy outside of a pool. He's lame and he's crippled because of his own sin. He thought he knew how to live better than God. He ends up getting, being hurt really bad. Jesus comes and heals him. That guy goes and he rats Jesus out. He's like, they're like, where is this Jesus? And he goes, he's over there. Heal me on the Sabbath. Go get him. Okay, so, they, so he sends these Pharisees uh, after Jesus. But they were divided there, too, because some said the same thing. You know, how can someone who do miraculous signs be a sinner and not be from God? Uh, actually, a lot of people think this is Nicodemus. Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, verse 2, actually goes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. 
So the Pharisees are divided in this. They, the Pharisees, again, go to the man and, and they question him. This guy, as opposed to the guy in John chapter 5, has no idea the whereabouts of Jesus, but he simply tells the truth about what happened. This guy humbly believes Jesus and demonstrates a growing faith. And what you see is this guy has been thinking about Jesus from his neighbors to the Pharisees and all the questions. His mind's been going. So, man, Jesus did this. Who is Jesus? What, what's going on? And he's thinking about this a lot. Verse 17, finally they turned to him, turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. See, so you see his growing faith. He's been thinking about who Jesus is. You know, well, Jesus did this, and now he's, he's a prophet. Prophets were sent by God to steer people back towards God's ways and who he was. He's a prophet. They, they don't like that answer. It's like, what do you think? He's a prophet. Well, you're wrong. It's like, why ask? You know, if you're... The Jews still not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? The parents are in a predicament. You know, what do they do? Whatever you say here is going to be bad. It's like when a cop pulls you over and says, do you know why I pulled you over? And you were speeding, and you go, know why I pulled you over? And you're like, uh, if you say no, they say, pay more attention. Here's a ticket. You know, if you say yes, then they go, well, you shouldn't be speeding. Here's a ticket. Thanks for copping to it. You know, it's like, it's like, what do you do? Unless you're my wife. She always gets out of tickets. Actually, got pulled over this week. She came home. I got pulled over today. I'm like, get a ticket? No. I'm like, it's always, not that I want her to because I can't afford one, but, you know, it's, she's always getting out of tickets and stuff. So anything you say is bad. Verse 20, we know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Oh, then they hid and ran away. Uh, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ we put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now I showed you this last week, that between chapter 8 and chapter 9, the Pharisees are really going after Jesus a lot harder now. I mean, anything that like brings up Jesus, you're gone. So they're really going after him. And the parents, like I said, they're in this predicament. They, this is their community of faith. This is their family. And, and it's like, well, if I, if I out them and I go for Jesus, I'm out of my family. I did this camp a few years ago, and uh, about 120 kids there, and there were three kids who kept stealing from all the other kids. And I found out about it, so I sat them down in this room, and, and when I sat them down, one of them was actually wearing somebody's jeans that they stole. And, and I go, you guys, and I laid into them, and then they go, we're not stealing anything. And I said, you're wearing so-and-so's jeans right now. These, oh, I brought these. These are my jeans. You know, and I'm like, ah. And so I said, that's it. I'm done. And I said, I'm calling the sheriff. They're going to come up the hill. They're going to put you in the squad car, take you down the hill, and he can sort it out, and you call your parents. I'm done. And then they start shaking a little bit, and the one on the end goes like this. You know, but very quietly because they don't even want to say it out loud because they'll be outed from their group. The parents are afraid to say anything because they don't want to be outed out of their synagogue. It's this thing. The Pharisees can't believe what's going on and they just can't let this guy go because he'll tell people. Verse 24, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. And what did they say? Give glory to God, they said. Exactly what Jesus and this guy have been trying to do. But they say, praise God. But only how we say. That's what we want. We know this man is a sinner. Why? Because we don't like him and he broke our stupid human rules. We don't like him. 
And the guy's response is just brilliant. It's like if you have a story about how God came and changed you and people are like, I hate that Jesus. I don't like anything about him. And then you just have what God has done for you, that God can be this good to you. This is the guy's response. Verse 25, he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. I mean, this is a great verse. This is the essence of faith. We live and testify about what we know. There'll be questions that come to you sometimes in your life that you will not have the answers to. Where about the dinosaurs? How old is the earth? You know, there's answers to all those questions, but you will get asked things that maybe you don't know. And then when someone asks you, you just tell them what you do know. I was blind. Now I see Jesus loves me. And he's good to me, and he can be good to you, too. That's testimony of faith. Verse 26, then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Tell us again, because maybe the first 20 times you told us, we missed it. He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples, too? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that just goes over awful. Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. And they will not believe what Moses actually said, where Moses says, A prophet after me, like me, is going to come. Deuteronomy 18, it's coming. We know that Moses, we know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And that's an insult. It's like Jesus is a homeless bum, claims his mom is a virgin. Right. You know, it's, they, they can't deny the miracle, so they attack his character. And here this guy should be a great apologist for the faith because they drop right into his hands and he just closes the deal verse 30 the man answered now that is remarkable you don't know where he comes from yet he opened my eyes we know that god does not listen to sinners he listens to the godly man who does his will nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind if this man were not from god he could do nothing do you see his progression of faith from where he started at this point now he's actually fighting for jesus and their response to this they replied you were steeped in sin at birth it was your fault that's why you were blind. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. you got to find another church because we don't like the truth here. you got to go over there. Go across the street. And here's the beauty. If you, if you look at Adam and Eve in the garden when they sin, you know, they're, they're wandering and they're alone. And who comes looking for Adam and Eve? God. This guy gets thrown out of the synagogue, out of his family, and he's wandering and alone. And who comes looking for him? Jesus. He's like, Jesus. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, so he'd been looking for him, found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe and worshiped him. When he realizes who Jesus is, the man instantly worships him. Now, if you look at this whole section, John uses the metaphors of dark and light. You know, it, it illustrates the man's progression from the darkness of blindness to the light of salvation. The man has this awakening through the entire chapter, and it's given descriptions like this. Verse 11 is the man they call Jesus. Verse 17, he is a prophet. Verse 33, he's from God. Verse 35, son of man. And finally, verse 38, he calls him Lord. Lord. God's glory is made manifest in this guy's life through his progression from darkness, blindness, to light, healing, and salvation. And now what I love about this is Jesus finds him, puts him, and I think Jesus now looks at the Pharisees and defends this guy as his child now. He's like, we're going. You know, I love this. Uh, Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. He contrasts the Pharisees with this guy that they think they can see, but they're really blind. He's defending this guy. Verse 40, Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are we blind too? 
Jesus said, if you, were, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. The Pharisees, you see the exact opposite progression of the man. The man goes from darkness to light and experiences the glory of God. The Pharisees think they are experiencing the glory of God, but are only experiencing the glory of religion. And they go from light, thinking they can see, to darkness. Jesus showing them that they are really blind. Merrill Tinney writes this. He says, Deliberate rejection of the light means the light within is darkness, which references Matthew 6.23. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The whole idea of this chapter in the Gospel of John is the idea of the glory of God, of Jesus. Jesus' glory brings light and salvation. It it heals our blindness. It wakes us up. It leads us into a greater awareness of the entirety of the creation that we live within. It helps us to be, it makes us able to see again. When we walk in darkness, every day Jesus comes and he offers the ability to step into the light so we can see. People, I think, in the first century who read this would get to the end of this story, and I think they'd be confronted with the question, and that is, will you leave your place of darkness and blindness where you think you know how to do it all better than God, and will you give up your own glory to the one who really deserves it? Will you truly see? Will you truly trust Jesus so that you can see? We are all invited today to truly see. See the world as God truly intends it, for His glory and our good and our joy. We walk in this faith that leads to life, and we get to see who Jesus truly is. I mean, that's, that is what communion is about every single week. Jesus goes and he, and he touches this man. He puts the mud in the guy's eyes and touches him. Through communion, every single week, we remember that Jesus touched us as well. That he has created eyes and enabled our souls to be able to see again. When you break the cracker and it resembles his body that was broken for you and I, and you dip it in the wine of the grape juice, it represents his blood that was shed for you and I. That's the, he does it so we can see. He dies and he raises from the dead so that we can have new life. And we can live in light and we can truly see again. So we worship God through communion. We worship God through prayer. There'll be some elders and deacons in the back of the room. And if you feel like, I am walking around in darkness, and I want to walk in the light, talk with them. Let them pray with you. Maybe you're, you're a believer, and you're a Christian, and, and you're like, man, I am just stuck in religion, and I am not stuck in the freedom of Christ, and I am not truly seen. Pray with them. They would love to talk to you about that as well. So we worship God through prayer. Uh, we, we worship God through song. The band's in here somewhere. You doing something? And we sing these songs that remind us that, that we walk by faith, that it's this faith in Jesus that truly allows us to see. And I worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the side of the wall. There's an offering box in the very, very back of the hallway. It's really cool. It's got a big old rose made out of steel on it. Steel roses are cool. Uh, anyway, so, and, and we give because God gave to us, and so we give back to Him. And we worship God through fellowship. We, we meet other people and we talk. We get to know people because God has enabled us to have relationships with people again, to truly see ourselves as we really are and that He is truly good. And then we can see everybody is all in the same boat and we don't have any right to look around and judge everybody else because we're bad. Jesus is good. He has given us light to be able to see. And that's for you guys, seriously. My admonition for you this week, walk in the light of Jesus. Walk in the light. You know, he, he has enabled you to be able to see. And so live as if you truly can see. Don't walk around blinded anymore. Don't live by stupid human rules and 
you know, religion, but live and walk like you can really see and show people what it means to truly be able to see. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that as a people, we would learn how to live as if we can see so you get your glory. And God, when you get your glory, we tend to get so much good and so much joy that it is amazing. But God, we don't want to just do it so that we get, you know, joy and good. We want to do it because you are God and you are worthy. God, help us to be people who get our eyes off of ourselves and stop running around thinking as if everything is about us. And that you would help us to truly see you in such a way that we would understand the great benefits of not looking inward, but walking in the light that you shed upon us. But have us be a people who show the world who you are by being really the only ones who have our eyes opened. God, create new eyes in our souls so we can see where you want us to go and who you want us to be. Have us live and walk in your ways because you are the only God and you have given so much goodness to us. Have us glorify you through all that we do. Amen.